Good to be here this morning. Everybody having a good morning so far? Amen. Good. Well, it's good to see your shining faces as we go into our third and final week of our sermon series, Jesus and Money. Um, look, I realize that three weeks, <clears throat> excuse me, of preaching on money can be challenging. We got to all admit it. We're family and friends here. It's okay. I get it. I'm looking at all your faces. I know where your heart is. It's going to be all right. I promise. But the problem is, is that God's word speaks about money, and therefore we have to speak about money. And it is a tender subject in most of our hearts. So when we start rooting around in that spot, it can be a little painful from time to time. I can't speak for you. I can speak for myself and my wife, Stacy. We have not escaped conviction by the Holy Spirit over the last two weeks about the way that we steward all of the resources that God has blessed us with. I think that's something that every believer needs to pay attention to. You know, when we talk about money and possessions, I'm always interested to hear and see how people view money and its purpose in their lives, how they view what it is and how they view what they're going to do with it. And I think for everybody, most people have a very specific way that they uh, view money and they view possession and they view resources. Everybody's maybe a little bit different, but in general, I think there are a couple of ways that people view money. And uh, the first is uh, money and possession are viewed as a, as a provision. Okay, so we view this as a way to provide for our families. Now, this is certainly true of husbands and fathers in the room. You were taught all of your life that your job is to provide for your family. You hear people say things like, I want my children to have a better life than I was given and a better life and so forth and so on down the line, right? So what we do is we find our identity as providers secure in the money that we have because that's sort of the the outward expression of being successful as a provider. The second way we see is really the truest sense of the word security. We look at bank accounts and possessions as things, as a safety net in case something happens, right? In case there's catastrophe, in case there's this, in case something happens to the guy who's the provider, we look at these things and we say, I find my safety and my security in things. In the wealth, the money, and the possessions that we've been able to accumulate, it provides me with a sense of safety and security. You know, my, uh, my grandfather, uh, he has been, he passed on 35 years ago. He's been gone a long time, but he was a really neat guy. World War II veteran, worked hard, worked in the oil field. And one thing, as I was looking over my notes for uh, the sermon today, uh, I began to think about him, and I began to realize, you know, I don't know if they were a thing, but I never saw my grandfather use a credit card, not once in his life, ever. Debit cards certainly weren't a thing. But what I do remember is every time my grandfather would get ready to leave the house, he would go somewhere and he would retrieve $100 bill from wherever that came from, the magic closet of money that they had in my grandparents' house apparently. And he would fold it up and he would stuff it in his wallet because he would always say, son, you don't want to get caught without money. You never know what's going to happen. All right. Got it, Papa. We're good. Let's roll. So years later, when he passed away, my grandmother and my mother and her sisters were going through his belongings. They came to his wallet, and they pulled it out, and they're looking at pictures and this and that. And as they began to rifle through his wallet, they found around $1,200 worth of $100 bills stuffed in every little pocket in this wallet. The wallet was like this thick, right? When he sat down, it was, he was leaning. 
But he found security in the fact that he knew he had money in his wallet in case something in case tire blew, in case there's somebody needed help, in case he needed to buy lunch, whatever it was, he had to have that cash in that wallet to make sure it was going to be okay, right? And just like my grandfather, many of us scurry around our lives, stuffing, saving, putting money in pockets and places so that we can make sure just in case I need it, just in case something happens, I've got enough. The problem I find in that, though, is that there's really no limit or bottom to the desire of the human heart to have more. More of anything. It doesn't have to be money. It could be anything. If one is good, two is, okay, is better, and a hundred must be great, right? That could be money. In my house, it's bluebell ice cream or donuts or something like that, right? And there's never enough, and the question we have to ask ourselves is, what's enough? Guys... What's enough to make you feel like you've lived a life of success in providing? Where's the number? What's enough to provide the sense of a security that my soul longs for, the safety? What's enough? Or better yet, is there enough? Now look, I want you to hear me say that um, wealth, having money and nice things is not wrong. It's not bad. It's not sinful. The Bible doesn't say that. You'll never hear me say that. But we have to talk about how we utilize the things that we have. You know, in this country, we have been blessed with more wealth and resources than any country in the history of time. And as believers, one thing we have to talk about is what we do with what we have been given. How do we navigate that? Because the one thing we don't lack in this country is options about what to do with money and resources. Someone is always jockeying to tell you this is what you should do with your money and this is what you should have this and you should have that, right? Constant bombardment from society in this. And the one question I want us to answer today is what does it mean to manage our resources in a godly way without finding our security or our our identity in them? So go ahead and grab your Bibles or your device or however you read God's word and uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 12, and we're going to spend our time today in verses 13 through 21. Now, when you get there, I want you to look at the heading right above verse 13. And if most of your Bibles are like mine, what you'll see is you'll see the name of this section of Scripture is called the parable of the rich fool. Now, you're sitting out there and you're thinking, we've been talking about money for three weeks, and this dude's going to get on stage and call me a fool this morning. Hopefully, that's not the case. Hopefully, we're not going to talk about us being fools. But what we are going to talk about is the foolish need of the human heart to find its sense of security in the things that we have and in gathering and pursuing more of those things. So we're in Luke 12, 13 through 21, and it says this. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he, Jesus, said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of the rich man produced plentifully, And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. 
And there I will store all my grains and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So I want to paint a little bit of a picture here. If you go back and look and read a little bit, you'll see that as Jesus traveled and taught and spoke, he had a crowd that traveled with him, right? And it's not just a couple of people. We're talking about thousands and thousands of people that might have traveled with him. So much that Scripture even talks about they would almost trample one another to try and follow Jesus around as he taught and as he preached. Think of a Billy Graham revival in motion, right? They're following Jesus everywhere. And we get to Luke 12, and we see that he's preaching and teaching with all of this crowd. And from nowhere, some guy yells out and says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This would be like being in here on Sunday morning at 9.30 with every seat filled. And as Pastor Matt is preaching about the filling of the Holy Spirit and how to be godly and follow Jesus, and somebody hollered out, Hey, I need you to tell my wife, Uh, to solve this argument between us. He didn't really have a grasp of the moment. He had poor timing, right? Jesus said to him, he said, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Look, and I would probably have said the same thing. What this, the intention here was Jesus going, look, mister, look, guy, I ain't got time to be getting in the middle of your civil disagreement with your brother. Right? Now, He called him teacher. This indicated that the the man would have seen Jesus as a rabbi or or a teacher. And in Jewish culture, it would not have been uncommon. As a matter of fact, it would have been one of the jobs of the rabbi to actually get himself involved in these sorts of arbitration, right? It wouldn't have been uncommon for him to make uh, judgments and rulings on ethical matters and on things like this. It would have made a lot of sense. So it wasn't, when Jesus said, I'm not going to do it, it wasn't because he couldn't or because he didn't necessarily want to. It's because when he when, when he looked at the context, the picture of what was going on, the way the man engaged with him and what he said, he looked beyond the man's words into his motivation. And he used this intrusion into this sermon as a moment to teach this man, his brother, and the crowd around him. Verse 15, he said, And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You look at that word covetousness, in the NIV it's translated as greed. Take card and be on guard against all greed. So when he looked at the man and he looked at everything that was going on and he heard what he asked and the way that he asked it, he saw beyond the need for an intervention in a, a, a civil dispute and he saw that the, really the issue was the man was greedy and wanted more than what he had. So Jesus took this moment to speak to that very common heart condition of greed that you deal with, that I deal with, and that this guy was dealing with. And what we see, or what I want us to see, is really the first part of this scripture. And the first point is real life is not found in what you possess. You see, this man, whoever he was, thought that it was the most important thing in the world that he should interrupt Jesus from what he was doing and holler out and get Jesus to do what he wanted him to do, which was 
give him more of what his brother had because he thought he deserved it. And what Jesus says is the most important thing for him and for everyone in that crowd was the lesson that the measure of a man or a person's life is not found in the amount of money you have or how many possessions you have or how much ability you have to accumulate those things. There are very few other statements in God's word that have a more clear prohibition against the idea of being greedy when it says one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. We live in a culture where the pursuit of more is the goal of everything. More money, more stuff, bigger houses. We are bombarded with these things. And we give very little thought to what we should do with the things that we get. We just think, we got this, let's go get more, rather than thinking, what, do we, what should I do with this? Think about that for a minute. As Christ followers, many of us, whether we have a lot or have a little, we spend our life pursuing more without ever thinking about what the goal and what the use and what the tool should be used for. The idea that somehow a life well lived, a life of success, and security can be measured by how much we have is simply not true. Remember, real life is not found in what we have. You are not what you have. You're, you're not what you have. You're not your house. You're not your money. You're not your things. And Jesus is going to teach on this, so he moves away from this statement, which is really the linchpin of all the teaching he's doing here, and he moves into what he does a lot of times, which is a parable, and he tells a parable in verses 16 through 19. And it says this, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, eat excuse me, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So what do we see? We see a farmer that has had a bumper crop this year, right? He has been blessed beyond what he's ever been blessed with before. He has got more than he's ever had. It says produced plentifully. This guy was having a good year, and by all accounts, he was very successful. Matter of fact, what he noticed was his only problem was the storage buildings he had to put his crops in were too small for the harvest that he had taken in. And I think this is where we begin to see the motivation of the rich man's heart. Because the first thing he says was, I'm going to tear down these barns I have, and I'm going to build bigger ones. Now, you notice it doesn't say that the barns were in disrepair. They were in bad shape. They were falling apart. Didn't say any of that. It said, I, I got too much stuff. I need to build something bigger to put it in. The assumption here would be that the barns that he had 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 been enough to care to hold everything he had needed from when he started up until that moment. But in that moment, he said, I must need more because I have more, so we're going to build a bigger place to put it. One of the things that struck me about this particular section of the scripture was the words, I and my. I and my. The farmer used, the rich man, excuse me, used the words I and my 11 times in three sentences. I will do this. I will tear down my barns. I will store all of my grain, my goods, I will say to my soul. I mean, no wonder he thought he needed to build bigger barns because everything that he had gotten was his, mine. I need to build a bigger place to put my stuff. 
I worked hard for this. I have gotten what I deserve. So I've got to keep this trophy of my great success. And to do that, I've got to build a bigger place to store all of my more. Whatever the more is you want to plug in there. For him, it was crops. So the second thing I think that we want to see today is, first, it's not about you. It's not about you. We don't need bigger barns. What we need to do is be a bigger blessing. How often in our culture and society today do we hear the mantra that says, if I work hard and I'm financially successful, then I should get more. I should get bigger. I should get nicer. I should get more. And when I get too much stuff, I should just get a bigger place to keep all the more I'm going to keep getting. More, more, more. Television, radio, concerts, the internet, Facebook, all of these places are screaming at you that your job is to accumulate more. Now, I want to be careful here because this scripture, I said it earlier, I'll say it again. It does not say that it's wrong to have material wealth or that to be successful is a sin. That is not the case. Don't ever hear me say that. The Bible does not say that. I believe that God expects for us to take our potential and maximize it in whatever we do, to be successful in everything that we go. Because it says that we should work, and when we work, we work to the glory of God, so there is glory for God to be found in our success. I mean, the Bible has story after story of people that were successful and wealthy, that lived godly lives and expanded the kingdom. I mean, even if we look back at the Old Testament, we see the life of Joseph. And in uh, Genesis 39, verses 2 through 4, we see this story about Joseph, and it says this. It says, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord had caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Joseph worked hard. He was successful. And ultimately what happened was he became rich and he became the overseer of the entire Egyptian empire, which was the most wealthy and powerful empire on the earth at that time. doesn't say anything about it being success being a sin. Or the wealth being wrong. See, the problem is never money or things or possessions. Those are just items. They're just things. The issue is always the human heart. It's always about our motivation. The constant obsessive pursuit of more so that we can feel successful and secure will inevitably lead us to only look back at ourselves inwardly. I me, my, I need more for me. I, all, this is what happens. If all we do is pursue more, we only look at ourselves. 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10 says this, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evils. For those who desire to be rich, the love of money doesn't say money's evil. Money's a piece of paper. Money to this guy's a crop. The love of it is what's evil. We have to guard against all greed. You know, in the, in the late 80s, there was a movie, I think it's the late 80s, a movie that came out called Wall Street. And in it, famously, Michael Douglas, who is this corporate raider, stands before this company that he's doing a takeover, and he said, greed is good. 
It's the world we live in. The message of Christ says greed is not good. The Bible teaches us, though, that we should be good stewards of what we've been given. We should save money and plan for our future. What we shouldn't do is find our safety and security in those things. We'll never truly live a generous life if the idea of enough is always a moving target, right? Because once I get enough, then I'm making more than I was before, so the need for enough becomes farther away. And this is the cycle that we get in. I get more, I got to protect that more, so I got to get more to protect that more. And on and on and on it goes. There is no bottom to the desire of the human heart to have more, and we never get to enough. John D. Rockefeller, who is widely thought of as the richest man maybe ever to live in the United States, maybe in the world, was asked one time by a reporter, what, how much money is enough? You know what his answer was? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. I want to give you some context for that statement because it sounds kind of whatever, but at the time, Rockefeller's wealth would have been estimated to be about 1% of the United States economy. 1% of the economy. If you translate that into dollars today, it was about $450 billion. They asked the man with $450 billion, how much is enough? He said, just a little bit more. Tell me there's a bottom to the human heart that says enough is enough. If we go back to the parable, what's the one thing that we don't see in the parable? The one thing that we don't see is the desire for this rich man to live generously to anyone else other than himself. If we view our money and possessions as a gift from God, as tools, then they can be used to serve a purpose greater than ourselves. But to do that, we have to understand that it's not about me, and you don't need a bigger barn. You need to utilize that to be a bigger blessing. If we take a look at the last part of the parable, the last half of verse 19 through 21, it says this. It says, I will say to my soul, soul, now look, first of all, this guy likes to talk to himself, doesn't he? Is there anything more arrogant than the guy that talks in third person to himself? I will say to myself, self. We get a real clear idea who this cat was when he starts talking like that. I'm like, ah, I see you. Okay, I know who you are. He says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The third thing I want that I think this parable is saying and I want us to kind of get our arms around is don't be foolish. Comfort is not your calling. You see, the farmer had gathered up more than he could ever need. It says he had produced plentifully and he had ample for many years. Had ample for many years, and what did he decide? He decided, I got my more here, so now what I need is I need more relaxation and more vacation. You see, notice that he didn't say, I don't need to chase more. He just said, I need to chase more of something else. I got this covered, so I'm going to go over here and chase what my heart really wants, which is to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. It was time for him to enjoy the fruits of his labor, right? He worked hard. 
And once again, if we look at our culture, they would tell you that your job is to pursue wealth, to pursue success, to pursue stuff, and then once you have that, you safely tuck it away and store it and then retire to a life of leisure and relaxation. We're told that we gotta work, we gotta grind, we gotta push, we gotta struggle, we gotta save. And then we just sit back and enjoy. That's the goal, right? It's the American dream. Now, once again, I have to qualify this a lot. I'm not saying retirement's bad. I think retirement from work is a, a, is, a, is, a, is a gift that people that have worked hard all their lives should take advantage of. But I think we have to look at what our motivations are for doing it and what we're going to do in it. If our only thought in retirement is just to satisfy the sinful desires of our fleshly heart, then we've not evaluated God's desire for our lives correctly. And when the farmer made this his priority, what did God say to him? God said, fool. Called him a fool. He didn't call him a fool because he'd worked hard all his life. He didn't call him a fool because he was rich or prosperous. He called him a fool because he had hoarded all of his wealth just so that he could find some sense of false security in all this mess, and then he could sit there and eat, drink, relax, and be merry. When God responds to this, he calls him foolish for finding his identity and security in earthly wealth, which will offer zero, and I repeat, zero eternal security or impact. None. As a matter of fact, what God says next is what? This night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? You worked hard, you hoarded all this stuff, and you thought you had all this time to love it and and enjoy it. And tonight's the night you're going to be called to account for it, and somebody else is going to get to enjoy all of that. Ain't done none for you. The one thing that you needed was to be rich toward God, and you ignored that, and now your time has come, and there's nothing you can do about it. That's why he says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is always the end result of greed. One day we get there and we realize we've made a mistake. The attitude in today's world, and yes, the attitude for many in the church today is that we need to pursue financial freedom for ourselves and our family only to realize at the end of it all we were never really free, right? We were a slave to pursuing more. We were a slave to some sense of false security and financial freedom when the only security that we need is security that's found in Christ Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross and leveraging our lives for the glory of his name and for the good of his kingdom. And that has very little to do with how much you have and everything to do with what you do with what you have been given. Money and possessions and wealth are a wonderful thing if they are in the hands of someone who has a kingdom vision. Think about that for a second. Here's what I'll tell you. And look, I'm going to preface this by saying that this might sting a bit because I can promise you it stung a bit when, when, when I had to work through this. We're all going to build a kingdom. Everybody in this room, everybody that's here at 8, everybody at 11, everybody in this world, we are going to build a kingdom. Now, we can value what this earth says is valuable, and we can build our own kingdom or we can value the kingdom of God and we can participate in building his. But one way or the other, we're going to build one. 
The option is which one do you want to build? Yeah, when I wrote that down, that was something I went, I, I need to take a second and evaluate my own heart on that one. That hurt just for a second. I was like, mm, I don't like that. I wrote it, and I don't like it. But look, what does it look like to be faithful with what God has given you? What does it look like? What does someone that is successful and pursues the things of God look like? I think we've got um, examples of that throughout the Bible and all over the world. I'm going to share one with you because it's a story that I really love, and it's a story that I was uh, required to read about when I was in school. You see, I graduated from Letourneau University, which was founded by R.G. Letourneau, a Christian businessman. And in that, you read his book, Movers of Mountain Men. They tell the story when he was a young man that he went to a revival and his sister was a missionary. And his sister, as he was listening there, listening to the preacher talk, and he, he became convicted that he needed to spend his life serving God and doing what God wanted to. So he said, sadly, he said, I guess I'm going to have to become a preacher or a missionary. And somebody told him, no. The world doesn't need more pastors, really. The world needs more businessmen and teachers and lawyers and trash men, construction workers that are willing to leverage their time, their money, their energy for the glory of God. He said, that's what I'm going to do then. I'm going to live my life as a Christian businessman trying to glorify God. He went on, had a seventh grade education, but he had a mind for engineering, went on to create. He had over 300 patents at the time uh, that he passed away, all for heavy machinery, earth-moving equipment. He helped build the very infrastructure of the United States after World War II. Founded and funded Laterno University, which is now one of the best poly Christian polytechnic universities in the, in the United States. And famously... He lived under what we call reverse tithing, which means he lived on 10% of what he made and gave away 90. I read a testimony somewhere that said R.G. Letourneau made a fortune, and he gave one away. He was a guy that was given much, and with that much, he had a very good idea of what was enough, and he knew he didn't need to build bigger barns. So he became a bigger blessing to the world. And I can promise you there are countless businesses and businessmen and students and missionaries whose lives have been impacted and are better because he had our kingdom vision for what to do when God blessed him. Now, what does that mean? What do I do? Right? All this talk about money and we got to talk about What's a practical, what are the practical steps we can do to live a, a life that it allows us to be godly when using our money? I think there's three things. And look, they're not earth-shattering. You're not going to go, I've never heard that before in my life. You know these things. But they bear repeating because I knew them and I still don't do, practice them all, right? That's the hard lesson for me in this is I know, I know a lot of this stuff. I just don't do it. The first thing that we must do is we must work hard. Ecclesiastes 11.6 says, Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. Remember, success is not sinful. There's glory for God to be found in your being successful. And if you want to be successful, work hard. The Bible says, work hard. Work for the glory of God. We should work hard and honor God by making the most of every opportunity we've been given. I believe each one of you has been given an inherent ability, and your job is to maximize that ability and be successful in everything that you do. Work hard. 
The second way we do it is be responsible. Luke 14, 28 says this. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? How many of you guys have built a house before in your life? How many of you have done it without plans or financing, with no idea of what it was going to look like or how you're going to build it and just went in and go, I don't care what it costs, Here, let's go. That's a horrible way to do things. And if you haven't built a house you're going to, let me caution you against that. Be responsible with what God has given you. Work hard, you earn your success, be responsible. Plan for your future, yes. Save money, absolutely. But make sure that you have a gospel definition of what is enough and have a right view of what it means to save and invest. Because if I work hard and I'm responsible and I save and I invest, it allows me to do the third thing, which is I'm called to live generously. Proverbs 11.25 says, Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Think about that. One who waters will himself be watered. The old blessed to be a blessing, right? We find, we need to find our greatest blessing and fulfillment in being generous with what God has given us for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. Kirk Nowry wrote a book called Revolutionary Generosity, and in that, he said this, instead of allowing our standard of living to determine our standard of giving, we must allow our standard of giving to determine our standard of living. We don't get a bunch and then say, I can give this much. We give a bunch and then say, I have enough to live and do what I need to do. Look, once again, wealth, not a sin. There's nothing wrong with it. There's no particular holiness in having little just for the sake of having little. Connor Bells used to always say, uh, never, never miss, never pass by a generous impulse, right? We say we work hard so that we can take advantage of those generous impulses. When we see a need, we can meet it. We can give to the things of God. We can expand his kingdom. We can utilize this tool, which is what money and wealth is, as a resource to do what God has called his people to do. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, right? This is our call. We use money to do that. If God has blessed you with wealth, praise God. Use it for the glory of his name. If God has given you nice things, praise God. Use them for the glory of his name. If he hasn't given you those things, use what you have for the glory of his name. It's not about having a lot. It's about having the attitude of using it all to leverage it for the glory of God. There's not one situation I can think of where a believer should say, I don't have to be generous. It's interesting is right after this parable comes the section of Luke where he says, don't be anxious. Right? Talks about the love of money and greed. And right behind that he says, as he corrects that view, he says, don't be anxious. Consider the birds of the air. How much more, does, how does God take care of them? How much more is he gonna take care of you? We spend our lives pursuing things that are gonna rust and die and go away. And most of the time we pay very little concern with what we should be doing with those things so that we're investing in our eternal security. How many of you guys invest money today expecting to get the big return a week later? If you do, it's a horrible thing. You invest money now so that years down the road you can have, you can reap the reward. Well, God says invest your money now so that one day when I come back 
or I bring you home, you can get your reward. Long view of things, right? Stella, you've never seen anybody, you've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. Can't take it with us. This is an uncomfortable thing for a lot of people to think about, right? And I'm not, what I'm speaking to you here this morning is out of the overflow of what God has been pounding on my heart for a week and a half. Work hard, be responsible, save, be successful, be the best at what you do. But do it so that you can live generously and live a life that honors God with everything that you've been given. But here's the thing. The only reason, I, the only reason any of us can live generously is because Jesus has been generous with us first. The idea of generosity is not something we're all naturally given to, right? If I take two little babies and I set them on the ground and I put a toy in between them, one of them's not going to crawl over there and go, here, bud, you have it. No, no. They're going to fight over who gets it, right? We're not naturally generous people. But when we, know, when we recognize that we're sinners in need of a Savior and we surrender our life to Jesus, we feel the generosity of the cross. And then we give out of the outflow of that. So if you're in here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this is not going to feel natural or even make a lot of sense to you. Because this is countercultural. This is opposite of everything we're ever taught. Charles Spurgeon once said that a golden coffin will be a poor compensation for a damned soul. Carry that one in your pocket for a couple days and see how it feels. A golden coffin will be poor compensation for a damned soul. None of it matters if you don't know Jesus, guys. So, if you're here today and you don't know him, my beg of you is don't leave here the way you came in. The richest decision you can ever make in your life, the best investment you can ever make for your future is to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. If you do belong to Jesus and you're here today, then I would tell you there's probably a couple of ways we can address what the Lord's been doing in your heart if he's been doing anything this morning. The first is some of us just need to repent for the way that we view money and the way that we utilize it in, in unrighteous ways. Most of us probably need to give, have God give us a more clear kingdom vision for what our resources should be for. And we need to beg God to give us a heart that wants to live generously over and beyond anything we could possibly imagine. I spent, a, I spent all week asking the Lord to show me what enough is and show me where I've gone beyond it sinfully. This is not an easy subject to talk about, but it is a good and godly and right subject. Scripture talks about it, therefore we talk about it. Because here's the thing I know, if the people of God ever really decide to live all out generously and chase after the thing that God calls all of us to, the world will never be the same. Never be the same. And you and I can choose to be a part of that. So as we come to our conclusion today, I'm going to get you to stand up to your feet. And in a moment, we're going to worship. Our ministers will be down front. If you don't know Jesus, your Lord and Savior, once again, hear me say this. Don't leave here the way you came in. That generosity of the cross is available to you today. If you need prayer, if you need to speak with one of our ministers, if you, this altar is open, if you just need to come and ask God to speak to your heart about the way you view your resources, do that this morning.